Amen. Well, good morning. Again, I say to you, Merry Christmas. Even though it does feel early to say, I believe now is the appropriate time. Uh, I do want to go ahead and share that with you because uh, my concern for this Christmas season is it is going to fly by as fast as this year has flown by. Um, It is already unbelievable to think that we are wrapping up 2022, looking forward to what the Lord will do in 2023, Uh, but we do have this Advent season to work through as well, and I'm looking forward to that. Now, if you have a child in the room and you're looking for a way to keep the children engaged uh, during the sermon, by God's grace, uh, through Brianna's leadership, we have a sheet that has been provided for them on that sheet. It asked several questions about each of the topics that we're going to be going over for the next four weeks. Uh, There is a, a Uh, is it a word search? Yeah, that's on there. Um, That is not for the adults. Um, So adults don't sit there during the whole sermon and do the word search and then bring it up to me thinking you're going to get a gift card somewhere. It's not happening. Okay. Uh, Children, that's not happening for you as well. I only point that out to say that on that sheet are five words that your kids can keep up with during the message, uh, that they can keep tally marks on how many times I say these specific words. And so I want you to know that it is my goal today to not say any of those five words uh, to see how this is going to go. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to blow it within the first five minutes of our text uh, this morning. But anyway, uh, just know that they have that to help them and encourage them. And parents, I would encourage you to encourage uh, your child to stay encouraged, uh, to stay engaged in the message and you yourselves be engaged as well as we are encouraged by the word of God uh, this morning. So again, let me welcome you to our Advent season. Now, for those of you who are new with us, walking through this Advent season. We spend every Christmas season talking about the Advent season, which Advent defined as the arrival of a notable person, a notable thing, or a notable event. And for the believer in Christ, we know that that notable person is Jesus Christ, uh, not only Christ who has come, but the hope that we now have in the fact that Christ is coming again. Um, so for the believer to look back upon the Advent season is to be reminded of the arrival of the coming of Jesus Christ as the newborn babe uh, in a season that the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so for this particular season of Advent, we're actually going to be walking through uh, the Psalms together, which is something I introduced us to this past week, uh, last Sunday if you were with us, and looking forward to walking through for the next four to five weeks together. And so we're going to be walking through a study of the Psalms and what they teach us about the coming of Jesus Christ. So for the next four Sundays, we're going to look at what we are going to call the Psalms of the Messiah. And so uh, our Our goal uh, for this particular series of Advent is to be encouraged by the Word of God as we look back to the birth of Christ and as we look forward to the second coming of Christ and hopefully see the hope, the love, the joy, and the peace that come with Him for all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So, This morning, we will begin with hope or the eager anticipation or joyful expectation of what is to come or who is to come. And hopefully, in uh, our text this morning or our singing this morning uh, from David, we will now see the hope 
that we have in the house. Now, a week ago, we talked a good bit about hope and how we now uh, have hope in the Word of God because it's in the Word of God that we learn about the hope that we now have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in a season focused on the coming of Christ, the question that I want us to ask this morning is how are we as believers in Christ doing at pointing people to the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ? Or better yet, where do we even begin showing others about that hope that is now being lived out as we invite people to come and see what it is that the Lord is doing? Now, again, if your kids have that sheet, I think I almost covered every word um, that was on there. So um, they should have at least one tally mark by this point. Now, looking at our text this morning, David's going to answer these questions for us in our passage as he points to the church and says of the church that there is now hope in the house. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me in Psalm uh, 122. And so if you would, go ahead and turn with me uh, to Psalm 122. And once you have found your place in the Word of God, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word. Now again, this is Psalm uh, 122, a song of ascents, a psalm of David. Psalm 122, David writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, to set the scene for you, if I could, this is a Psalm of David written uh, as David was probably traveling or as travelers were traveling to Jerusalem with a group of like-minded believers who were now on their way to worship in Jerusalem. Now, this Psalm describes really the glory of Jerusalem and the eager anticipation or the hope of the arrival of Jerusalem where God is the center of worship and ultimately where the dynasty of David now rules under the authority of God. All this you can read about if you go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now again, this psalm would have been something that would have been sung by those who were traveling to Jerusalem, ultimately bringing their first fruits uh, during one of the three feasts that occurred during that particular year. So if we were to fast forward to modern times, this psalm would have been sung by the believers as they recognized that this word for Jerusalem wasn't necessarily about the city, nor the inhabitants of the city itself, but actually was a word for the church. And thus this word in Psalm 122 is actually meant for all believers in Jesus Christ. 
So you see, when you, when you read Psalm 122 with the church in mind, you see that this was meant to be an encouragement for the believers in Christ, as well as a good word for those who are seeking the hope that Christians now have as they come in to the local church. You see, this psalm, if we could, if we could sum it up with a simple phrase, would in essence be the believers saying to one another, saying to those around them, do you want to now see the hope that we now have in Christ? Do you want to know the hope that we now have in Christ? Then come and see for yourselves. Come and join us as we gather in the house of the Lord. So this morning, let's look at our text. And let's see why it is good to invite others and even good for ourselves to join together in worship. In other words, let's answer the question this morning, why is there hope in the house? Well, our psalmist is going to give us three reasons why we now can have hope in the house. We see in verses 1 and 2 that in the house there is gladness. Look with me again in verse 1. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, for the psalmist, we see his gladness is found in the fact that he gets to go to the house of the Lord. He gets to go to the, to the sanctuary or to the place of worship, which was typical for the local church. But not only was he glad that he was able to go to worship, but he's now encouraged because he was going to church not only to worship, but he was encouraged by those around him who would join him in worship. In fact, we know this when we go back and read the phrase, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You see, for the psalmist, his gladness wasn't just found in the fact that he was about to go to the house to worship God. His gladness was found in the encouragement that was coming from the fact that he was able to worship together with other believers. You see, at this point, we need to pause and ask ourselves, do we understand that people are encouraged by us when they see us in worship? Do we understand as, as Christians today that our presence, and again, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of you or a big deal out of me, but do we understand that as believers in Christ, our presence can and does have a profound influence as we meet together for worship? Now, coming back into the text, we see the phrase, the house of the Lord, which is something I think we need to think a little more about. You see, the psalmist is not just talking about any building that just calls itself a church, but rather I believe the psalmist had specific meaning when he was thinking about the church and what the church is when he calls it the house of the Lord. You see, for the psalmist, I believe that when he called the church the church, he wasn't thinking about brick and mortar, but rather he was talking about the place where Jesus Christ is the foundation. He was talking about a place where her pillars are, are those who minister according to the word faithfully, a place where the beams are stable believers who regularly attend, a place where the windows are the ordinances and the door itself represents the believer's faith in Jesus Christ. You see, when we think about church that way, 
we quickly realize that it's not just the duty of a Christian to attend as we read about in Hebrews chapter 10, but we also see that uh, our time in worship in the local church is also a place where we now have the privilege, or better yet, the spiritual pleasure to attend and worship together. In other words, there is gladness in the house because it's in the house where we find an abundance of peace, an abundance of encouragement, and an abundance of comfort. There is gladness in the house because the house of the Lord is a place where God and God alone is given all honor and God and God alone is given all the glory. There is gladness in the house because the house is a place where believers stir one another up to live out their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning in verse one, how many of us have this view of the church? I mean, if we we don't have this view, then maybe it's time for us to pause and and do some self-reflection, maybe some some self-examination, if you will, because we may be missing out on the joy and the goodness and the beauty of being a part of the local church. If we if we don't share in this gladness and this and this hope for the church, then this may be revealing a, a heart issue within ourselves. In fact, notice how the psalmist continues here in verse 2. He says, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, the psalmist here is not talking literally about standing in Jerusalem, or better yet, standing in the, the gates that now surround the city, but rather what he's talking about again is the local church. Which honestly, when you, when you read the Old Testament, it's, the, the local church is often referred to as Jerusalem from a spiritual standpoint. Now what's interesting to note is he uses the word standing. And the word standing here literally means continuance. So here's what the psalmist is saying from verse 2. He says, there is gladness in those who continually find themselves gathered in the local church. You see, in the local church, the gladness experienced amongst the believers is now further rooted in our assurance of knowing that because of Jesus Christ, we can continue to abide within the local church for the purpose of worshiping God, but also to be encouraged by the presence of one another. And we do this together. So church family, we have to ask ourselves in this season, do we see the gladness that comes as we gather with the local church? Do we see that we are encouraged by those who gather with us? And at the same time, as we look around the room, we are encouraged by the others who have now gathered with us as well. Do we see the assurance that the local church now gives us? And how we now play a part in encouraging one another through our presence together. Faith family, hear the psalmist's words from verses 1 and 2. Don't just go to church out of mere obligation. Don't just go to church to to check off that box and then move on with the rest of your week. Rather, listen to what the psalmist says when he says, Go with gladness knowing that it is a blessing and a privilege to gather together with like-minded believers. You see, in the house, there is gladness. Not to be confused with happiness, 
There is joy. There is gladness as we gather to worship God. There is gladness as we gather to encourage one another. The psalmist continues from there in verses 3 through 5. He gives us the second reason why there is now hope in the house. He says that not only in the house is there now gladness. He says this, that in the house there is unity. Now, sadly, like most of you, I also recognize that unity has been something that's been lacking in the Western church. Now, this may be true of many churches that we see and read about through social media, but it really shouldn't stop us from seeing unity restored back through the local church that the Lord has called us to. So let's just jump into this text and see what the psalmist means when he writes about unity. Verse 3, look with me. He says, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. Now, let's just pause there for a moment and be reminded that in in David's day, when we think about Jerusalem, Jerusalem really was a city where the, the lower level of the city and the upper level of the city were actually joined together as one. And the houses in Jerusalem actually stood in continuation and they weren't just staggered and scattered throughout the, uh, the city. Even the streets themselves were built as a continuous street without end around the city in its entirety. So even when we think about the way Jerusalem is laid out in David's day, we should also be able to look to the church and say, man, the same should be said of the church of God as well. You see, when we think about these words of Jerusalem and what Jerusalem historically looked like, we should be able to look to the church and say to the church that the church itself is a continuation of what it is that God had in mind. In other words, the church is built on a rock. The church is built on a hill that is, that is Jesus Christ and his word. The church as a continuation of God is a, is a visible city full of inhabitants, which means there is mission for the church. There is evangelism that needs to take place within the church. The church itself as a continuation, excuse me, It's a city governed by the law, or better yet, by the word of God, and therefore is a city under proper officials, which are biblically qualified, faithful to the word, elders. A church that is a continuation of God is is a free and fortified city, having salvation for its walls, which is found when the church practices discipleship. And ultimately, the church of God, being a continuation of God, is a royal city, the city of the great king, the city of our great God, which points us back to the reason why we gather in the first place, which is worship to God alone. Now I have to ask you, when you think about church, does this sound like the church that you attend? Does this describe our church? When you think about church, is this how you describe it? I would hope so. But if you're here this morning and you could say no, then I want to ask you this question. Okay, if your answer is no, then let me ask you, what part are you playing in helping us get to this point? Now, some would argue at this point, man, this is not for me, nor is it my job to help the church be the continuation of God. Well, okay. I would encourage you now to continue reading the phrase that's followed in Psalm 122 when it says that Jerusalem, the church built as a city that is, and I would underline, bound firmly together. In other words, this 
does not mean that the church is for some and not for others. This passage also does not mean that we are now completely unified in all things, okay? I don't expect any of us to walk out of this building today and go to the same home for lunch, although that sounds good. I think the Simpsons are going to invite us over. I'm kidding. I just put them on the spot. That was bad. I'm sorry, guys. It doesn't mean we all walk out of here together and and head to our favorite restaurant because we all don't agree on these things. So rather, what I think the psalmist is teaching us when he talks about being bound firmly together is that we are united in our affections towards one another. We may not agree on every sentiment of the faith. However, we do agree on most sentiments of our faith. Thus, we are able to join together in corporate worship and we can live under the authority together of King Jesus and what it is that he teaches us according to the word of God. And as if this wasn't enough, David and the psalmist continues here. And we begin to get a picture of of what we are unified in as a church as we look at what now happens to the church. Look again at verse 4. He says, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now again, here is the psalmist comparing the church to the gathering of the tribes that took place in Jerusalem when they gathered for worship. Whether they were gathering uh, for Passover or Pentecost or, or any of the tabernacle type moments. Either way, by making this comparison, the psalmist is now revealing what the local church is and what the local church should be. He says, listen, for the sake of unity, the church is a place where worship to God is carried on. Nothing else. To be unified, the, the church is a place where the word of God is to be faithfully preached and nothing else. For the church to to continue on in unity, the word of God not only has to be preached, but the word of God itself has to be celebrated. The ordinances are administered and the believers attend for their own personal growth and ultimately their own profit as they continue to grow in sanctification. But then notice also the phrase that we get from the psalmist when he says the decree for Israel. We've been talking a lot about decrees recently for a variety of reasons. But I believe here the psalmist is making a reference to the fact that it's in the house of God where God himself dwells with his people as they gather together as a local body. Again, the psalmist is reminding us of the unity that comes when the body of believers are gathered for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. And then notice the text even tells us that in the very next phrase. It says, and the church gathers to give thanks to the name of the Lord. In other words, whether what it is that we have been given is temporal or whether it is spiritual, we should give thanks to God for all things, whether in private and when we gather together in public worship. So notice what the psalmist is saying about unity in the house. He's saying that unity is found in the house as we worship God and give thanks to God for what it is that God himself has only done. But he goes from there in verse 5. He talks about the thrones of judgment. He says their thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Now here the psalmist teaches us that as a church, as members within the church, we are all now sons and daughters of the Most High King. 
That's what these thrones represent. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, when he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we can cry, Abba, Father. In other words, Paul, like the psalmist, acknowledges that as a church, as a faith family, we have been set apart by Christ. We are now adopted into the family of God. Let me unpack what I'm talking about for a moment. Do you see where you are sitting now? You are sitting with a body of believers. As a Christian, if you are a Christian, you are sitting together with brothers and sisters in Christ in a chair that God preordained for you. Now that doesn't mean you can walk around and say, this is my chair, thanks be to God. But what it does mean is this, you are here as a believer in Christ because God ordained it to be so. It was God who in his perfect wisdom, it is God in his providential plan gave us our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and you are here because of him and what he did. Thanks be to God for the fact that we are here together. You see, as a faith family, speaking to the faith family, the psalmist reminds us that not only are we here because of what the sovereign Lord has done, but as a faith family now, as believers in Christ, we have a responsibility to hold one another accountable. So you see, unity is not just found in the house as we worship and give thanks to God, but we now see that unity in the church requires accountability for the church and by the church. Again, notice the phrase, the thrones of judgment were set. Now, again, excuse me, this does not mean that we get to come into the church and sit critically over one another. It does not mean we get to come into the church and be critical of the Christmas trees or the signs or the pastors or the worship or the chairs or the carpet. It doesn't mean we get to come in and be critical and say, well, I'm not coming back to this church. Why? Because I don't like the fact the doors are red. They should be orange. Stop that. You see, we can't come in and sit critically over one another as if we rule one another from an iron throne. No, as Christians, when we seek unity, we seek it not only to, to praise God because God alone is sovereign, but we seek unity for the purpose of accountability, meaning that we seek the welfare of the church, which means we respect the conduct of one another. And we do so by holding one another accountable to the word of God. In other words, we encourage one another to grow in righteousness and sanctification. We, we question one another and challenge one another when we see that there is sin in the midst of the camp. And we don't do it because we, we seek to just vilify people. We do it because we care about this place. We care about our God. And we care about one another. So you see, faith family, when we talk about these, these thrones of judgment, if you will, this does not mean that we fight for the sake of fighting. No, as Christians, we fight for the unity of the church and nothing more. It's just like what Martin Luther said when he said, to gather with God's people in united adoration of the Father is as necessary to Christian life as prayer. 
So you see, brothers and sisters in Christ, if we're going to invite people to join us in this church, let's do so knowing that we are doing our part in promoting unity. We all have a part in fighting for unity and and ascribing unity to the church. And sometimes accountability is needed for the purpose of preserving unity. And so the question is, will we each do our part as called by God to endorse and increase the unity within the church? Again, I love what Dwight L. Moody says about this point. He says, I've never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Brothers and sisters in Christ, can I encourage you, fight for unity. Because according to the psalmist, in the house, there should be unity. This leads us to our third and final point of why there is now hope in the house. And that's found in verses 6 through 9. We see that in the house, not only is there gladness in the house, is there unity, but now in the house, there is goodness. Now, okay, I recognize that you may be looking back over verses 6 through 9 and thinking, what does this text have to do with goodness when really all this text is talking about is peace? Well, stay with me for a moment because I think you're going to see that a part of the goodness in the church comes to life in and through the virtue of peace. And we're going to see that through what the psalmist says about peace and how we are to be praying for peace through three different individuals or three different aspects, if you will. Look with me. Verse 6, he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, notice the first thing he prays for here is a, a prayer by the people for the people. In other words, the people together collectively are praying for peace, or better yet, they're praying for the well-being of themselves and of one another, and for those who may even come and join them in worship, who may not believe in what they believe in, but may have been invited. So you see, the concern, according to the psalmist, was very simple. In praying for the, the peace of Jerusalem, he's praying for the welfare of the people of the city. This is the same thing that Jeremiah prophesied about in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, when God's word was said to God's people, but seek the welfare of the city. You see, the psalmist's goal here at this point in praying for Jerusalem was very simple. By putting the welfare of the city in the forefront of their hearts, the church could now pray for peace within their soul, but they could pray for peace for one another, and they could be at peace with their enemies and thus enjoy peace as they live free of the heartache of persecution. Can I just say to you that nothing will diffuse tension better than praying for the person who has wronged you? Nothing will diffuse tension better than praying peace for the person who has hurt you. And this is exactly what the psalmist calls us to. You see, praying for the peace and the welfare of the church reveals our heart for the church as well. Even when members of the church hurt us or wrong us, church family, are we praying for peace and thus praying for the welfare of our church? The psalmist continues here in verse 7, and he says, Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. 
Now, again, to understand what the psalmist is praying here, we need to kind of get a quick glimpse of what was happening in Jerusalem. You see, again, in Jerusalem, in David's day, Jerusalem itself was a walled city, and literally the psalmist at this point is describing it as just as Jerusalem was a walled city, so too should the church be. In fact, when you look at descriptions of God in the Old Testament, you'll notice that God himself has a wall of fire around him, which is his judgment that is to come before people are united with God. Thus why we teach the only way to God is through Jesus Christ our Lord, because there is no other way. But again, pay attention to this passage when it says security within your towers, because another way to render that phrase is to say prosperity within your palaces. Now again, don't mishear the psalmist as as some uh, false prophets have acclaimed at this point. This This is not a name it and claim it passage. This is not a moment where you can say, hey, if I pray for wealth, God's going to give me wealth. This is not a moment where when the pastor's on the screen and he says, if you touch the screen, you'll be blessed with $100,000 the next day. It's just not true. You're going to get blessed with static and you're probably going to shock someone in your room. Or you may notice your TV's kind of dusty and you should probably clean it. Rather, what the psalmist is teaching here is he's teaching that the walls of the church were not meant to keep people out but rather the walls marked the barrier of refuge that people can find when they come to the church. In other words, there is goodness and virtue in the house when we realize that the walls of the church are meant to be a source of refuge and not a source of division. So you see, praying peace for the body, praying peace for the walls, the psalmist is now turning his attention uh, back over to the individuals themselves. He says in verse 8, For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. Now again, this prayer for the community, this prayer for refuge, now turns to a prayer of peace and welfare that is specific to the believers in Christ. And not just believers in Christ in general, church body in general, but more specifically to those who are uh, faithfully a part of the local church. In other words, in praying for the body and, and in praying for the community and praying for the church, we see the psalmist is praying in such a way that he wants to see the church not only be an integral place of refuge, um, but he also wants us to continue to pray for one another as we know one another by name. Because the reality is this, we can often neglect praying peace and praying welfare for those who are in our midst that we know. Now we know this to be true because here's what often happens. We'll look around the church and all of a sudden see someone and say, oh, well, there's Jonathan. He's clearly in the house of the Lord. He's doing okay. We may look over and say, oh, there's there's Allison. She's in the house of the Lord. She is clearly doing okay. She got here and she has to put up with Johnny. But she made it. Thanks be to God. And then here's what happens. We see people that we know We see them gathered in the house and we think they're okay and the reality is they may not be. And so what ends up being neglected is we fail to pray for one another. 
What ends up being neglected is we fail to pray and check in on the ones that we know. We fail to ask questions like, hey, how are you? And I'm not talking about the passing, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, keep walking. I'm talking about the no seriously, how are you? How can I be praying for you? You see, if we're going to pray peace to be within us, We have to look to those we see in this place, to those we know and say, not only will I pray for the church generally, not only will I pray for the community that this place would be a refuge for those um, outside the walls, but we also need to be praying for those that we know within the walls as well. Because the reality is, even in the midst of our service, life is just hard. And if I could be so bold, sometimes holidays are even harder for those who are hurting. And so how are we praying for those that we see here in this place? Coming back to the text, we move from there and we get to our last verse and we see why praying for peace and praying for the welfare and praying for the, for the goodness of the church and the community is so important to the life of the local church. Verse nine, the psalmist tells us, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I mean, talk about a a declaration for a moment that we as a church should be making every morning before we even come to church and every day before we go to work. I mean, literally, if you were to break this down in the modern terms, the psalmist is saying to us today, not for my own home, not for my own family, not for my own personal interest or my own personal conviction, but I today will pray for the welfare of the church. Why? Because I want good for the church. And not just good the way the world defines good, but good the way God sees fit and the way God says is good. So you see in this moment, the the psalmist teaches us that he will do all the good that he can do for the church, whether it's through his actions, through his word, through his services, through his sacrifice, through his time, through his finances, through his prayers. He acknowledges that through his actions and his words, he will not only do good according to the will of God for the local church, but he will do good for the purpose of encouraging other believers to join him and do the same. You see, Christian, if we're to have hope in the house, And if we were to point others to that hope and say to them, man, come and see, come and see what the Lord is doing, then man, we have to be a people who seek to do good by the church according to the will of God. In other words, we have to not only be concerned for the welfare of our community as people come to this place seeking refuge, but we have to be a people who willingly pray for the Lord's will for our church collectively And at the same time, we got to be a people who say, man, I'm going to pray for the peace of the people that I know. And even the ones that I don't know well, but I just know them by name. I'm going to to get to know them, but I'm going to commit to to praying for them. And yet at the same time, we got to recognize that our actions and words should always be for the good of the church. Because we should seek to encourage others too good to do good in the church as well. Why? Not for our own accolades or, or benefit, but for the glory of God. Because it's what God has called us to. So can I just ask this morning, man, do, when you pray, do you pray peace for the church? And not just peace, I'm talking about welfare. Do you pray welfare for the good welfare of the church? Do you pray good welfare for the people? Do you seek in your actions and in your words to continue to do good? 
Honestly, if I could just be honest, I, I think that answer can be found in, in how it is we uh, gather and what is found in our posture of worship. If I could leave you with a thought, it would be this from E.M. Bounds. He says it better. He says, men are God's method. The church today is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. You see, for the good of the church and the hope that is found in the house, let's seek to do good. Let's be better at what we say and at what we do. Let's prioritize praying for one another. Let's prioritize gathering together. Let's prioritize meeting with one another for the welfare of the church. Why? Because in the house there is goodness. You see, faith family, as we begin this Advent season together, my prayer is that we would remember that we have hope. We don't just look back upon the hope that has come through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We praise God for that. But because of that moment, we can now look forward to the hope that is to come. You see, at the birth of Jesus Christ, like Corey said earlier, it was the beginning of the end of history. When people talk about there's a right side of history and a wrong side of history, which side do you want to be on? That's the moment we're talking about. There is no other moment. There's nothing that even can even come close to that that would affect your eternity. So you see, as a part of God's plan, God and His grace and His providence, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, has made us a part of His house. We're here because of his, excuse me, we're here because of His plan. We're here because of his providence. We're here because he alone is sovereign. We're here because of his grace. And because we are here, we now have hope. And yet at the same time, we are here. And thus we've now been given the freedom to gather. We have been given the freedom to be the local church. And so I ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, where is the hope? Do we recognize that the hope that we now have in the house? Do we recognize that, that in the house where there is now hope that we also find gladness? Do we see that in the house there is now unity? Do we see that the hope in the house can be found when there is goodness in the house? As Martin Lloyd-Jones said it, he said this, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Faith family, let's be different from the world because we are different from the world. This house does not seek to divide. In this house, there is unity. In this house... There is goodness in this house. There is gladness because in this house, there is Christ. And for those reasons, there is now hope in the house. May we be encouraged by it. May we worship and give glory to God alone for it. 
And may we live out our lives in light of the hope that we now have. Let's pray together.